welcome to episode 37 of Super Entertainment Presents the Television Crossover Universe on the Grand Gignall Network. Coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. Joining me are the cool one, crazy Ivan Shabovsky, lover of cheese and my imaginary friend. The classy one, James Boyachuk, CEO of 18th Wall Productions. And the undisputed pun master, Chris Nigro, author and founder of Wild Hunt Press. I am Robert E. Ronsky, creepy weirdo and king of crossovers. We are the TVCU crew. The TVCU crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots through official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the television crossover universe. This is an intellectual show about trivial things. And now, our shameless plugging segment. Chris, you start. Well, I guess I can do a quick plug by saying, please refer back to what I said in the previous episode. How's that? <laughs> so you're plugging last you week's said plug. The previous episode was the stuff that you've already mentioned. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay, good talk. <laughs> okay, Ivan, how about you? Well, I would like to point out that uh, as of this show, I have been promoted to imaginary film status. <laughs> That's right. So I'm, I'm kind of stoked of about that. James, how about you? Well, 18th Wall Productions, we've just released the August installment of The Science of Detect- Deduction, Aaron Smith's The Cocoon of His Dreams. This one will be special fun for our listeners, and I held off on announcing it for an episode with a vampire expert, because this one is a full-on crossover between Sherlock Holmes and Professor Abraham von Helsing. Ooh. Now, after Holmes has gone over Reichenbach Falls, Watson finds spiritualists in London advertising sittings with Holmes's spirit. Watson's aghast. He thinks spiritualism is nonsense, but this spirit that they're contacting knows things only the real Sherlock Holmes could have known. So after a meeting with Mycroft, Mycroft dispatches one of the most reliable men allied with the Diogenes Club, Professor Van Helsing, to investigate. And this isn't even more fun, this isn't Stoker's Van Helsing. This is clearly the hammer horror Peter Cushing Van Helsing. And Aaron Smith does a perfect job capturing him. In fact, that's specifically why we sought him out to do one of his really quite excellent Van Helsing stories. Nice. Now I do have a plug. Lorimar Van Helsing, according to Chuck's uh, Children of the Night timeline and my Triumvirate of Terror timeline, which is based on his. Thank you, James. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. That's all I've got. All right. So for me, um, Metal IP of Scarecon, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I say the same thing every <laughs> week for like two months now. Um, so today... Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. Uh, anyways, um, so today I'm actually plugging something um, that uh, that I, I, I really love. Um, not that I didn't love all the other ones, but I have personal experiences with this one. It's the Haunted Hayrides at McRae's Farm. Uh, they were at Scaracon promoting their, their hayrides. Um, I've been to their hayrides before because it's in, uh, at McRae's Farm in South Hadley, Mass., which is not that far from where I live at the Fortress of Solitude. Um and uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, every, every October, of course, for Halloween season. It's a really well-done attraction. Um, 
they really go all out with the effects, the scare factor. I highly recommend it. It's a hayride, and then it leads into a haunted house. And uh, I, I got to say that um, when I went through last time, I was really, really nervous. <laughs> I, I always, I always get this feeling like, what if somebody here isn't an actor? They could be somebody who has been an actor at a haunted house more than one. Um, not everybody there is an actor. Or they could be a singer. He's Rob is right. They could be a singer. You don't know. It, no, it just makes me nervous that like some real serial killer could just so easily slip in. <laughs> so well, they might start singing to you. Yeah. So so um, I, I, I if, if if you have a chance um, to get the South Hadley Mass, um, I, I recommend the Haunted Hay Rides at McCray's Farm in October. Um, it runs. It runs from October first all the way up to Halloween, so um, it's a good time. Um, Just gave a lot of real serial killers some ideas, Rob. Yeah. Well, you know, I I did a hay, uh, another hayride one year where where I participated, and there was a guy as Michael Myers there, and nobody knew who he was. Like, no, nobody knew him. No, like he wasn't like. Like, oh, yeah, that's Joe, just as Michael My- Nobody knew who this guy walking around as Michael Myers was. <laughs> but it was a Powers impression, right? Huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, grew, he was going on Groovy Baby. and <laughs> Maybe he's the guy you interviewed at the Scaracon, Ivan. Yelling, donkey! <laughs> okay. Uh, so the other thing I wanted to mention was crowdfunding. Um, just, you know, I have, I have to mention this every few shows. Um, uh, uh, you can help support the show with either, uh, a one-time payment on our GoFundMe, or if you really want to commit, you could do a monthly commitment on our Patreon. Um, the money keeps the show running by paying the studio rent and our fees for running the show on iTunes. Um, we don't make any money from the show, so without crowdfunding, it all comes out of my pocket. Um, and I do have sandwich overlords helping fund me fund the show now. Um, but <laughs> it takes some time out of my, my, my life to have to go and make sandwiches for other people to pay for the show. Um, so your donations are appreciated. Um, and even if you can't afford to pay, um, just keep listening cause we love you all anyways. And we know we're all poor in this world and, uh, we do have a lot of listeners. Uh, we get over a thousand listeners a week now, uh, which is incredible. So um, we love you all, all who are listening. Um, I never thought we, <laughs> we were going to be as successful as we are, and our numbers just keep going up and up. At, so uh, each week. Um, so stay tuned. Oh my because God, you're not dying, are you? No, that was no. so. That sounded like one of those things you say to your loved ones when you know you're dying and nothing can be done about it. It's, I just love you all and I really appreciate all the time we had together. It gave me diabetes no. just listening to it, but it was awesome. No, but but but, but my, my career as a sandwich artist makes me feel like I'm dying sometimes. Hey, what the, <laughs> it's the same, Rob, where there's a sub, there's a way. But anyways, eat fresh and um, <laughs> stay tuned because after the commercial break, We'll be talking with our good friend, David McDowell-Blue. So we'll be right back. And we're back. 
A few years before creating this podcast, uh, unbeknownst to many, I had another very short-lived live podcast, also called The Television Crossover Universe, episodes of which are still out there on the web. Our guest tonight was the very first call-in guest on that show. Tonight's guest also designed the original Television Crossover Universe logo. He's a playwright. He's working on novels. He's got an excellent website for vampire lore and fiction. We're going to talk to him about all of this and more in the next 45 minutes. So it's my pleasure to welcome our friend and longtime member of the TVCU crew, David McDowell-Blue. Welcome, David. Well, hi. Thank you. So, so first, um, you have an excellent vampire website, um, vampires.com, I believe. Is, is that correct? Uh, that's not my website. It's an okay, online what, magazine what that is, I've written for. What is your website? Oh, uh, I've been to my it, personal but website is uh, called Zahir13.webs.com. Okay, is that the one with the timeline on it? No. Which one has, <laughs> which one has the timeline on it? Uh, uh, that website is kind of uh, virtually defunct. I'm trying to uh, create that, uh, change the timeline onto uh, Word files and uploading it onto the uh, Monster uh, site. Excellent. Uh, Chris, you, Chris, you need to make Facebook. that happen for David. I, yeah, I already did, I did uh, a current draft of the Karnstein time okay. slot, timeline, and uh, I'll be doing the Bathory uh, timeline, the uh, multi-part vampire timeline, and I also have a Collins family timeline. So you've got the website, and I would go as far as to call you an expert in vampires. Um, yeah. And besides the website, um, there's the play um, based on Carmilla. Yeah. And you've also edited the annotated Carmilla. I'm about to make a plug. The uh, Reedy Point players in Delaware City, Delaware, are about to put on my play for uh, for Halloween. That is awesome. <laughs> That's a fourth awesome. production. I, I am so glad, glad it's spreading. And, We're not and, talking about VD here. We're talking about David's play, which I think is remarkable. Right. And I must say, David, did you think it was it, w- it would be such a runaway success like it has been? I'm sorry, could you repeat again? I was, I was a little, uh, I had a little trouble hearing it. Ah, okay. Um, are you, um, uh, are you as thrilled as we are that your play on Carmilla was such a runaway success? Oh, I'm absolutely thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. The fact of the matter is, I've never liked any of the play versions of Carmilla. Uh, I've, it was very hard to find any, just uh, to find out what it find a script or something. Uh, that's ultimately why I wrote it. And uh, so that's why I, I wrote mine, <laughs> which also corrects uh, what I think are a lot of flaws with the film and television versions, um, of which I've seen all but two that I know of. Well, what is your personal opinion, David, on the current on Carmilla web series that seems to be popular? I love it. I love it. <laughs> That is a wonderful updating and reimagination of the whole idea. Uh, cast is wonderful. Uh, the twists and t- turns remain very, very fun. It's full of lovely little in-jokes. Uh, like the fact that uh, the setting is Silas University. Well, the most famous work 
by uh, Joseph Sheridan Lafanu, who wrote Carmilla. Other than Carmilla is a novel called Uncle Silas. So it's full of little, little in-jokes like that. Oh, do, do you have any doubt whatsoever, I, David? Oh, I'm sorry. Who wanted? Someone wanted to ask. No, something. no, go ahead. Okay. Um, what I wanted to ask David is: Do you have any doubt whatsoever that Life Fenu's? If I hope I pronounced that right, Life Fenu's um, novella had an influence on Bram Stoker's Dracula, considering it did precede it. Well, it's like this: there is no uh, definitive proof that uh, Bram Stoker ever read Carmilla. But when you look at the vampire literature uh, up until Dracula, you read Dracula and you look at Carmilla, it is very hard to believe he didn't. Because it has so many things in it that were unique to, uh, to, to, to Lafanu, and then ended up, in Dracula, even though they weren't really uh, things that ha- were not used by anyone else, that at least that I know of. Um, for example, this was the first story that had what you might term a professional vampire hunter. Uh, this was the first time where you got a point of view uh, from that of the vampire's victim, and that the vampire's attack was viewed as a semi-erotic dream. Uh, this is uh, almost the only version up until then that dealt with the idea of how did a vampire get out of its grave um, and presenting that as a mystery. And uh, other and some other little things like that. Well, what a lot of people don't realize about the importance of Carmilla's uh, erotic elements, it was also a love story. And I, I, I would like you, David, if you could tell us um, how, you know, what you think about the controversial nature. I've always wanted to ask you um, what you think about how the controversial nature um, of Carmilla, how Sheridan Le Fanu got away with that. So let's hear about it. Huh. Well, uh, that was bad, Chris. That was bad. Sorry. Well, it's interesting because, first of all, um, uh, Lafano was writing in the Victorian era, and the Victorian era was uh, had an undercurrent of uh, uh, seething, rather kinky eroticism um, that no one ever acknowledged or at least not publicly. Oh, now, I have to disagree there. I just have to thoroughly disagree. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, with no all of the explosion of porn novels that were popular among the general readers, with what we see in all of the journals from the period, there's no boiling undercurrent. It was very out in public. It was very openly erotic. People talked about it. People discussed it. It was the done thing. It's been buried by later history. Okay, that's a that's a good point. Well, they well, respectable society tried to pretend it wasn't there. I, 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 that. That. I, I would say the main question is: Was it mainstream? I, I I don't you know. Obviously, what James is saying was there, but I guess the question is: Was it mainstream? Because even well, look at the trouble Oscar Wilde got into. You know, just for you know um, the picture of Dorian Gray, he had to make it more subtle than I think he otherwise would have. So Oscar I, I, Wilde was not mainstream. <laughs> He had mainstream success, but he was not a mainstream author. Well, uh, that's another uh, discussion. 
I would uh, more. I was saying, Mike, regarding Carmilla itself, that um, in effect, it, it, it's a tremendously ambiguous work. Now, I you didn't mention it, but I also am the editor of the annotated Carmilla, which there were four hundred plus footnotes, and I have noted like all the hints and details that would indicate, and this is a major factor in it, that the narrator, Laura, is an unreliable narrator. She is clearly speaking to a specific someone telling this story. That specific someone evidently has their own agenda, their own identity, although we don't know much about them, except they're an older female uh, from the city. Um, and when you carefully read the books, you find out Laura is a uh, is contradicting herself quite a bit. She also hides certain things, and sometimes, you know, to use that famous quote from Shakespeare, uh, she protests too much. Mm. And the patterns are things like she talks about her emotions pretty much throughout the story until immediately after Carmilla is un unmasked as a vampire. And then she doesn't talk about her feelings again until the last paragraph. It's things like that. Um, you know, she claims to be um, vaguely repulsed by the fact that Laura, that Carmilla is so affectionate to her. And yet, Laura describes spending hours brushing Carmilla's hair and weighing it in her hands. Um, there's a lot of contradictory information there. And I think it's a matter that you're supposed to, uh, like the novels of a period without TV or radio or an enormous amount of theater, um, People reread novels, and they're supposed to pick up these clues and then argue about it or debate or make up their own minds. So it's not that, uh, for example, homoeroticism was unknown. It's that in the family story, the homoeroticism is... Uh, either being lied about and or is being uh, demonized, except Tunnel isn't hugely demonized. So there's a, very, a lot of contradiction there, which is one reason I'm convinced the story is, is uh, continues to be popular. And, you know, too, I should say, David, basically to everyone listening, you know, I wasn't around in Victorian England, okay? So I can't speak as a what? professional, not in this identity. But mm -hmm. one thing I can say, you know, I imagine, you know, that if you walk into a bookstore that you know, the eroticism that was published back then would not be sold in the same places that you find, you know, things outside that genre. I, I mean, even today, the such is rare. It often was. You could I, pick it up at the railway station with, say, Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah, but it was a railway station like your typical newsstand back then or your typical yes. shop? In fact, they had little booksellers who went around with, basically, imagine an open suitcase on their chest, and you could pick up early paperback books well, Okay, these but men I, hawking novels. Okay, cool. Yeah. To, but, you know, how, I, I mean, since Carmilla was obviously not marketed as a rock 
but it's like horror, but you know, like a horror. It was part of an anthology, if I'm not correct. I mean, right, David? Wasn't it originally part of an anthology? It was initially published. Well, initially it was published in uh, uh, serialized form, and then um, a prologue was tacked on and included in an anthology uh, to link it to the rest of the stories. Uh, okay, because as um, because as reading it, it could see that the homoeroticism was 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 subtle. It's, it it didn't seem to be coming from an era like nowadays, where every you know where you see people of different of the same you know gender kissing on MTV, which you think about it is cool because I think that did a lot you know to de demonize. Is that a word? De demonize, you know, yeah, yeah homoeroticism. Thanks. But back then, you know, it, it, I mean, in, in regular, in, in non-erotic literature, it all seemed to be subtle. So, I, I it, well, I mean, I, I think it, it runs the full gamut. I mean, there is, there was absolutely hardcore uh, pornography, uh, given the technology in Victorian times, and then there was also uh, moments all the way up to very, very subtle things, and uh, I think and Ellen, everything in between. Sorry. I was going to say Ellen Moore would totally agree with you, and James knows what I'm referring to by that. But um, um, uh, I, I guess uh, another question, I guess, David, I could ask really about, you know, this is going back on your play, which I think is very interesting. When you did the play, you did make certain changes in terms of time period, and I thought that was interesting. And I, I guess I might, I'd wonder if you could tell us, you know, your reasoning for that. And uh, Okay. Uh, actually, I'm very proud of it. <laughs> But it's for an interesting and subtle reason that people don't generally get. Um, and it's absent in most versions, most dramatizations. The simple fact of the matter is, Carmilla is set in Austria, and the internal dates, internal clues of the story indicate it really can't possibly be happening any later than 1846. Uh, but certainly it couldn't be taking place any uh, later in the 1860s, simply because it's supposed to have taken place 10 years before it's published. Now, that means, you know, the audience was in the, were the English-speaking peoples of the 1870s. Now, you ask any English-speaking audience in that period what they think of with Austria, and the first word, the first term that will pop in their minds, quite accurately, is police state. It was renowned as an autocratic empire that had none of the civil liberties that the English-speaking world were so proud of. No such thing as trial by jury. Um, uh, open censorship, no representative government. Uh, the ideals of the Enlightenment were not something enshrined in any possible way really, in terms of uh, the law and government. It was an autocratic uh, dictatorship. So I guess back then, feel the burn must have meant something totally different than it does today. <laughs> well, in Austria, it sure did. Uh, uh, so, but when you think about that, then if, if this vampire story is set in a police state, and the vampire hunter is an official of that police state. Um, that adds a very interesting nuance to the whole story. 
and I don't want to lose it. I was trying very much in my play to recreate the emotional response that uh, the original audience got. So I had two options. I could either spend a whole bunch of time trying to figure out how to portray the nature of the police state that is uh, Austria in the 1800s, or I could move it forward in time to what I did, which is Austria immediately after the Anschluss, when Austria had joined, the, uh, become part of Nazi Germany. And then you've got all that iconography, all, that, all those buttons in the head that you can press with the audience concerning what is, I think, quite rightly viewed as one of the most horrific and obvious authoritarian states in history. And did you so think... The added, oh, sorry. The added plus, of course, is the Nazis were extremely occult-obsessed. Right. So, you know, you have this other thing is that they were... Uh, you know, how would, a, how would uh, a member of the SS respond to the idea of someone going around drinking uh, Aryan blood? Uh, and on top of that, there was this uh, extremely rigid uh, idea of, set, of gender roles. Uh, once the Nazis came to power, they actively discouraged women from having jobs, they once saw women as nothing but mothers and housekeepers, really to an extreme. And I think that's an interesting thing to toss in there in a lesbian love story. So then could you see um, transgressive themes as being part of uh, Carmilla, I mean inherently? Is that the, the woman characters are transgressive, they, they break boundaries, basically? Yes. The whole story is, and it is absolutely filled with tensions between op different polarities, because uh, the, the story is full of very young people and very old people, and there really isn't anything in between. Uh, it is a story between men and women, and the two worlds basically don't touch. It, it, there is a conflict between the idea of religion and faith, and then science and rationalism. Uh, there is a conflict between privacy and the public. There is a uh, con there is a conflict between the idea of uh, parent and child. Uh, all these things are in there, and it makes it an incredibly rich brew of stories. And when you add to that nuance of that certainly what's going on here is breaking all sorts of rules. It is transgressive. Um, the homosexuality, the parasitism, the fact that someone is dead and yet alive, um, that uh, someone is abusing uh, their status as a guest, um, uh, that someone is uh, lying about who they, what their name is. Um, and the same time that they are preying upon their own family, because Laura's mother is presented as being related to Carmilla. She's a Karnstein, one way or another, and that makes Laura a Karnstein. So, 
you know, yes, it's incredibly transgressive on so very, very many levels. At the same time, the transgressions contradict each other. Because it is is not that simple. You know, we do get a sense that, for example, Carmilla is doing this because she has to. And one gets, actually one does get a sense that she actually, if you actually look at the details uh, dating within the story, you find that Carmilla waits a full month before she starts feeding off Laura. And that's when all the peasant girls are being drained. And when that stops, Laura, Carmilla anyway, makes a half-hearted effort to leave before she starts drinking Laura's blood. So you and think it's from the, Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. You think there was real love, I mean, that that Carmilla had for Laura. It wasn't just a um I would say um a feint that she was making just to get at her blood. It was real love there. I believe there's well there's certainly a relationship. Um and one of the things that you start thinking about this. Laura is an extremely lonely person, and whatever else Carmilla is, Carmilla is her friend. A good friend. And despite Laura's claims to the contrary, she's clearly a very lonely young woman. And that, um, whereas it is claimed by the so-called experts and vampires that a vampire is prone to some sort of bizarre obsession with a human being. But in fact, if this person was not a vampire, we would say they're in love. Didn't we get a lot of that all through um, folklore, like with, with fairy lore, too? It's similar things like that? I'm sorry, I, that, you broke up just a little bit. Could you repeat that? Oh, sorry. Um, didn't we get similar themes throughout fairy lore, which we could say vampire literature might be an extension of? Of basically a, a, a non-human being becoming obsessed with a human and basically trying to bring them over to their side. I think I've seen sure. that theme, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, if, uh, if I understand, yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. I think this is a behavior that human beings do, not just vampires. So, and it's, yeah, it, it's a way of uh, returning early. It's kind of one way Lafayette got away with a uh, sexually very edgy story by uh, coding it as something else. So, and that's, that was that, really, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, go on. Go ahead, go ahead. I, I tend to just flap my jaw forever even after. Go ahead. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, that's, but you're actually interesting. You know, that's, <laughs> that's what you're here for. But um since the podium was thrown back to me, I, I was gonna say, you know, I do see that theme throughout, like I mentioned before in fairy lore. Um a member of the fairy race has designs mm-hmm. on human and wants to bring them back into the fairy realm, which will transform them into a fairy after time. Well, vampires, if you want to put aside discussion on the vampire dimension, they don't seem to have their own reality. They exist on Earth. So they they want to bring a human that they, that they get a fancy to 
into their world, which is a castle on the other side of town, but nevertheless transform them to a vampire like them. Or maybe a hidden city under Paris. Who knows? Cool plug for Black Coat Press there, dude. But anyway, um, I think you, that's the gist. I think, you know, I, I see that same theme coming into Carmela, and, and she's like a lot of female um, members of the, of the fairy folk we've seen in, in, folk, in stories, folk tales. She's a seductress and, you know, very powerful one. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it, it's sort of a thing to me is how mythology changes and readapts itself. The fact of the matter is, it's like, for example, in the year 1750, you uh, ask someone, what is a vampire? And they probably would des- describe this stinking corpse rising out of the ground and looking to uh, devour people and possibly rape them. So it's basically close to what we would call a zombie. And the kind of description of what, a, uh, of what we think of as a vampire would, in that in previous centuries, be closer to what some would describe as a fairy. Not the cute little fairies of Victorian fairy tales, but uh, creatures like the Tutha de Nan of Ireland. Just as more than one person has pointed out, there's something very Irish about uh, Carmilla and about Lefanu's writings. And, you know, there's, you know, there's something like Banshee-like about Carmilla. And there's a strong hint of lots of, of mysteries that are left completely unanswered. Because there's a lot we simply don't know about what's going on in terms of Carmilla's life. Like, what is she doing most the rest of the time? Well, I, I guess uh, another question I would definitely wanted to ask you, David, is um, I know that we're all aware that, I like to think we're all aware anyway, that that Hammer Films had a trilogy where they wanted to, I should say, delve into the Karnstein mythos, and I was just wondering, what are your thoughts? Did you think they were just exploitation films, or did they really have something good to add to Legend of um, What I thought of the Karnstein trilogy? Yes, from basically. Hammer. Yeah, basically. Um, did. Well, um, first of all, I didn't know the history of the Karnstein trilogy. How to put it together. I do think that for a long, long time, the vampire lovers... Is was the most faithful film version, easily, easily the most faithful, up until the 1980s, um, and uh, partially because I think I suspect the director just uh, went in a certain way because of the actors, because really Ingrid Pitt and Madeline Smith uh, give such a fantastic uh, job in, in that film. And none of the, the other films have some interesting stuff in them, but they don't, but they don't ever come up to the interesting even just as Carmilla, i.e. the Vampire Lovers. Um, this was, of course, what they were trying to do was, at that time, was that Hammer was trying to, was trying to uh, find a new marketplace, a new niche. And they think, and, and it got like, well, we've kind of used up Dracula. And they kind of used up Frankenstein. And so they were looking for something else. And the idea was to explore Carmilla and what 
I don't think it ever quite worked, partially because of the pressure they got from the British censors. I mean, it's sometimes you should find out the, the director of the Vampire Lovers to this to his. I think if he's still alive, he was still saying it to this guy in interviews. Who were going saying, "I didn't see anything lesbian in that story." What are you talking about? Uh. Uh, but then he was also claiming to the censor, says, what are you talking about? There's no lesbianism in this movie. And um, the censor didn't believe him, that he couldn't stop the production. But then, he, but then he was very much more watchful of the next few films in the series. And as you can see, basically, uh, there was a tiny bit, particularly the lesbianism, but there was a tiny bit. I mean, the Vampire Lovers is certainly a dark, Byronic lesbian love story. Um, and Ingrid Pitt played uh, Kendall as a very reluctant or melancholy vampire who's genuinely in love with uh, the Laura character, uh, renamed Emma in this one. But this same character supposedly brought back in the second film, Lust for the Vampire, is suddenly in love with a man and uh, dallies with a few girls. That's not very much. Um, and it becomes a triangle between um, a female teacher, the male teacher, and the student, Carmilla. So that means... For the man. For the man. Hello? Was it good or bad? Chris, are you on the highway? Um... No, this just goes my way. I guess you didn't hear my last comment then? No. no. Okay, Sorry. I said based on what David was saying with the change they made in the Hammer films, it's um, uh, a woman. You know, she in a woman, but then fell in love with a man. I think her uh, her lesbianism went bye-bye. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. And by, and by the very next, by Twins of Evil, which is, it actually has quite a few interesting things in it. They're pretty cool. Just, you know, lesbianism, gone. Some other interesting things were developed. You know, the, you know, the whole um, the exploration of Puritanism as its own form of evil. That, that was cool. But uh, the whole lesbian aspect of that was not really, uh, you know, gone because of and then when they brought in the Karnsteins, as mentioned in the film Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, there was nothing. There was just nothing along those lines at all. Because uh, the censors were just being that way, and because Hammer was not really interested, I think, in going in that direction. Because they'd always been titillating. But to actually explore love... And genuine eroticism was just not part of their oeuvre. Well, we're, um, we'll be wrapping up in about 10 minutes, but I do have a few more things to quickly throw your way, David. I'll try to be brief. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, this has been a very good discussion, very interesting. Absolutely. Um, even though you may have missed my pun, the, my pun, the bye-bye thing, I bet she went bisexual. <laughs> that, that, okay, that was bad. All right, but, but, um, I guess one thing, uh, one quick thing I wanted to throw your way is that one speculative question I often hear, could Universal have done 
um, justice to the Carmilla story if they attempted to put it into film. And I think they kind of sort of did because Dracula's story, Dracula's daughter, rather, they did get some lesbian themes in there that were surprisingly overt for the time in that one scene. So I, I wonder, could they have, do you think, could they have done Carmilla justice? Oh, what a lovely, speculative idea. Oh, that would be absolutely delightful, I think. Um, could they have done Carmilla Justice? I think they would have had to invent their own version of Carmilla, much as Universal came up with its own version of Frankenstein and Dracula, which aren't particularly faithful to the novels. Which they sort of did with Dracula's daughter, could that be said? Yeah, but that explains some of the same themes. And awfully well. Um, I think. Um, I think what sort of really got in the way with all that was the Great Depression, because uh, on the one hand, uh, the big budgets that were supposed to originally go towards some of these films uh, got pulled back. And the Dracula originally was supposed to have a much larger budget and bigger stars and all this. Um, but the Depression hit and you just had to uh, cut things back. And that also, uh, because of the tension of the time, saw a rise of Puritanism. The Hayes Code. Yeah. Which, um, when you look at films of the pre-code... Uh, really makes you, you, you will find yourself in that terms really wishing that uh, somebody had taken Carmilla and decided to make a film uh, in Hollywood pre-code uh, and see what you could do with it. And I think that could have been amazing. Um, I think, I also frankly think I might have wished for the German expressionists to have done something along those lines. I think James Whale would have made an awesome Carmilla movie. Hmm? Well, right. He he did Daughter of Dracula, and rumor has it that's how he sort of stuck those lesbian themes in there because you know, in in, in a way, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, Countess Zaleska is uh, is like uh, as the very least like a, a literary or dramatic stepsister of Carmilla. I think yes. They just yes. connected to Dracula. <laughs> yeah, this was. Um, this was really good. That was very good. That was very good. In fact, I will even, I once joked around, uh, once actually I think I've created a piece of artwork. Yeah, for a Photoshop. I just, uh, what I did was I created one of those uh, universal post-DVD uh, uh, covers for what if it was Carmilla. And I uh, and the picture I chose of Camilla was Elsa Lancaster from the prologue of Bride of Frankenstein. And Countess Maria Zaleska, a lot of a lot of rumors say that she was James Whale basically giving the finger to the Hayes Code, which I think is cool. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, um, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating what if. Um, yes. And if, and uh, to my mind, if, if it weren't for the Hayes Code, if people were pushing things the way they had been before Hayes Code, which was which was very very restrictive, not only in terms of sexuality but <clears throat> also in terms of women's roles 
and any kind of moral ambiguity, uh, then, yeah, Universal might have done a Carmilla, and uh, that would have been a fascinating thing to see. Well, we, we now have just a few minutes left, so there's just one quick thing I want to throw at you in a more general way, David. One of the things in my gr- groups you're so valuable for is your, your, your reviews of theater, your regular connoisseur of theater. Um, do, do you mm-hmm. agree that basically theater should have the same interest shown towards it as it always has, even before the advent of film? I'm sorry, could you repeat the question again real quick? Yes. About theater, you know, like stage theater. Yes, theater. I mean, as a connoisseur of theater, David, do you believe it should still get the same degree of attention it did prior to film? I think I went unheard again. Um, I still can't quite make out what you're asking. There's a certain blurriness to the sound. uh, You're uh, you're asking about uh, some connection between... No, no, basically a few words. I was thinking, do you have a few words to say why theater should still be relevant? Stage theater. Oh, because it's a fundamentally different, uh, same reason that concerts are still relevant, even though we have magnificence, uh, even though we have, iP- uh, you know, iPads. Uh, it's, um, it's a living experience. It's the reason why you still go on dates instead of uh, talk over Skype. It's there. Wait, people still go on and dates? Also, also because you can unleash um, the imagination in a completely different way than you can through a cinematic medium. Uh, there was a play I recently saw that was, I realized one of the things that was bothering me so much was a realistic set. Because it didn't seem realistic simply because... Uh, the strictures of having to put everything, bring everybody into the same room to have all these scenes, uh, basically created a, a barrier between ourselves, between the audience and the characters and the situation. But if you see, but like the several plays I often see, you say it's, uh, more of the theater I see is not realistic, but actually has some sort of strong stylization, and that stylization. Uh, is like when its movement becomes dance and the step becomes sculpture and uh, even speaking the lines becomes poetry and song in a way that is very difficult for film or television to do. And so, I mean, uh, my play, for example, Carmilla, is designed very much to be a theatrical experience. If uh, someone's asked me, I've been asked several times, did you write a screenplay? of Carmilla, and I said, sure, but it would bear very little resemblance to the film, to the, my play, because it's fundamentally a different thing. It's when, what theater does best are things that no other medium can, at least not very easily. And lesson is that it is an enact, enacting of a ritual that's what theater comes from. It is from religious ritual enacting myth right there and in front of you, where you can actually smell the incense, and you can actually uh, feel the breath of the actor, when you can, uh, you know, with, when the dancer moves past you quickly, you can feel the wind 
and the, and the air that he creates. That is the kind of thing that a film or television just cannot do. The actors in stage react to the presence of the audience. So each single show is uniquely different. And that's what makes theater unique and continues to be valuable in the same way that actually playing a guitar remains valid even if you can play a guitar on your computer. And I'm not cutting either of those, and I'm not putting the computer down. Very that cool. Oh, that more yeah. than answered. That was very cool. Thank you. <laughs> Does anyone else have anything to ask before we wrap? And I'm not talking about hip hop here. Uh, I figured you were segueing to. Well, uh, that, yeah. What was that, Ivan? Oh, nothing. Just a, a bad rat pun. Sadly, oh. nobody thought. <laughs> so, on that bad pun, um, that that is about all the time we've got. <laughs> um, David, thank you so much, and I, I hope you'll come back sure. on again because this was I'd I was enthralled in you this. You never got around. You never got around to my Kleinstein timeline or all or the crossovers. <laughs> yeah, so um, we're gonna have you just. just it was just Carmilla, Carmilla, and you know I love Carmilla, <laughs> and uh, so I was I was just enthralled in this, and uh, Chris, Chris, and you were just having such a wonderful dialogue that I I, I certainly wasn't going to interrupt that. Um, so we definitely want to have you back on again and definitely talk about your timeline and crossovers and more stuff. Um, uh, unfortunately, we have an hour show. So, um, okay. but, I, but I do want to ask, is there any projects that we haven't mentioned, past, present, or future, that you would like to quickly plug? Um, right now I'm trying to get somebody to produce a play I've written called Noah's Code, which I describe as a... Um, modern southern gothic ghost story that may or may not involve an actual ghost. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and I'm writing two things. I'm writing, as it were, a sequel to a Shakespeare play. <laughs> and I'm all... Also... Yeah. Uh, it's a sequel to The Tempest, actually. Okay. And... Uh, uh, I am also, uh, I'm trying to write a screenplay that I will uh, publish, which is my adaptation of Dracula. Oh, I can't wait for that. I will think <laughs> things into that one. Yeah, I even cast it in my head, who I would cast it, which has led me some interesting things. So, I just want to awesome. say quick... I'll be getting all David's timelines up on the Monster website. Just wanted to say that. And uh, finally, uh, where where can our listeners follow you on social media to keep up with your projects? I didn't hear the last thing. It was a little blurry. Uh, to keep up with your headset. Yeah, where can our listeners follow you on social media to uh, follow your projects? Um, well, I'm on Facebook under my full name, David McDowell Blue. Um, you can find me on Twitter the same way. 
my website, again, where you can connect with me on various social media, including my blog where I review, fair, review plays. Uh, my website is Zahir, Z-A-H-I-R, 13.webs.com. Awesome. And, yeah. It, and as you can tell from the somewhat awkward uh, name of it, it's free. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, it doesn't have lots and lots of ads. I always just so. post, I just always just click on the links that you share on our, our various groups. So I, I don't memorize the, the names of the websites. <laughs> if, you go to my, if you go to my website, everything that where you can find me is right there. You can click on my blog. You can click on my Twitter account. You can click on my YouTube channel, the whole thing. Awesome. Including well, seeing, uh, seeing uh, trailers for uh, annotated Carmilla. And you can also click and find uh, links to where you can see the annotated Carmilla or purchase a copy of Carmilla or uh, check out with Off the Wall Plays that has published it and therefore will, um, you should contact them for uh, rights. Uh, any theater people living out there, it plays under 90 minutes long, uh, one set, uh, and uh, nine characters, five women, four men. Anybody in New England who wants to put it on, I would love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So would I. Yeah. And Salem would so, be a uh, great place to have it. <laughs> Or Northampton, actually. That cat would agree. Yeah. Well, Rhode Island has a history of vampires, so that might be better. Right. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, okay, we've had three we've had three productions so far, one in upstate New York and two in Los Angeles, and then this new one in Delaware, and I'm hoping for more. Oh, I didn't um, even know about the one in upstate New York. That's That's really cool, too. Yeah. Awesome. So there's a potentially everywhere could be a good location to put on this place. Right, right. Iraq. <laughs> Madagascar. <laughs> Antarctica. Latveria. <laughs> Austria. <laughs> Markovia. Yeah. Not Markovia, so, no. <laughs> thank you, David, for being on. And would we definitely going to have you back on, like, really soon. Okay, great. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. Uh, um, I hope. I hope uh, closer to. Uh, I hope that um, I'll get. To, I hope they're going to record the product, the uh, performance, uh, performance of Carmel. I would love to see it. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I can't afford to go there, which I would love to do, but one way or another, I do know there's a friend of mine here in Los Angeles wants to direct Carmel again, but maybe for next year's Halloween. Which should be cool. That would be. Okay, well, thank you very much, and um, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Thanks again, David. Well, that's about all the time we've got for this week. Join us next week when we'll be joined by author Jamie E. Ramos and famed Iron Man scribe David Micheleni. Before we end, I want to thank our sponsor, Reinhold Industries, and a special thanks to Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music, Leaf on a Stream. Thanks to all who listened. Remember to subscribe to and rate our show on iTunes. And as always, everything happens somewhere. Good night. Good night.